Okay, guys, go ahead and uh, grab your seats if you're not already sitting down. Yes. And just so you all down here on the floor know, there are people who are up in the balcony. So when I look up there, that's, there's a reason that's happening. I'm not just kind of casting my eyes toward the heavens uh, <laughs> randomly in the middle of the service. Uh, so guys, welcome here to Midtown East this morning. Uh, as you guys may know, that we are in uh, this Advent season. And Advent is this time the church has traditionally uh, set aside to help us remember and to wait for Christ's coming at Christmas. And this is a really, it's, it's an important time for us as Christians because in the Advent season, we're practicing the waiting that we need for our day-to-day lives. Because what's true about us as people, as Christians, is that we are a people who live between the two Advents. That Advent means coming. And Jesus has already come. And what we believe is that he is also coming again. And so we live in between these two Advents. So in this season, in December, in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we look forward to uh, our celebration of Christ's first Advent. And in the waiting and in the remembering that that takes and in the training and hope, that that, that actually then flows out into the rest of the year, teaching us how we wait for the Jesus who we believe is coming back. So that's this Advent season. So we light these candles or we flick these candles on because of the insurance rules here at uh, Riverside Revival, okay? Uh, And last week our candle was hope. This week it's peace. And so we're not gonna talk about peace actually. We're gonna just stick on hope. Uh, And that's because as I was in our scripture for this week, as I was meditating on what we talked about last week for myself, I was struck by and just reminded of the incredible importance of hope. That hope is central to who we are as people, to who we are as Christians. That hope is necessary for how we live in this world. And that was brought home to me yesterday uh, as I was reading uh, this Wall Street Journal article that was part of their weekend edition. And it was about this guy named Dave Hollis. Do any of you know that name? Uh, Dave Hollis was, uh, he was kind of a, a top level exec at Disney for a long time. He was head of their, I think, global operations or global content delivery. And his wife, Rachel Hollis, was a, a massive influencer. She had gained this incredible following by being vulnerable online and then by sharing ways for people to kind of grow, uh, kind of self-help tips uh, from, from this place of vulnerability. And he quit his job at Disney to come and and work for her to be a part of this kind of empire she was creating. And kind of along the way, he, uh, he started to build a brand himself. And so the, this, this news article talked about him building his brand, what it was like, and, and then it talked about uh, what it was like when their life started to disintegrate. And it zooms in uh, to this moment where where Dave is sitting by the pool and he goes on this two-hour live Instagram uh, rampage. And in this two-hour kind of live interaction, he yells at the people that are following him about the fact that they are not buying enough of his books. And then his four-year-old daughter, Noah, comes into the scene and he yells at her and she comes back and she asks, Daddy, will you make me some Mickey Mouse pancakes? And he, he yells at her, get a life. And there was this real moment of disconnect, like this, this person who's selling us this image of, of, uh, of vulnerability and, and, 
and how we can move ourselves into a better place. Like, look at where he is. So a few months later, he's off Instagram. He's in a detox facility. But he eventually, he gets back on and and he talks about feeling completely broken. This is what he says. He says, I'm feeling completely broken from the pressure of this strange public life. A year after that, a year later, uh, he was found dead in his home alone with his phone sitting on his chest. And what the autopsy report revealed is that he had toxic levels of cocaine, ethanol, and fentanyl in his system. The article says it was a combination that interacted lethally with an underlying natural disease of the heart. That what happened to this man is he lost hope. That he was unable to imagine a future where anything good was going to happen. And he found all kinds of ways of coping with that loss of hope that literally destroyed his heart. It's so sad. And it reminds us that hope matters, that when we talk about hope, it's, it's not this uh, ethereal, spiritual practice that's far away from us, that us being a hoping people is an urgent, everyday matter for our lives. And what our passage talks about this morning is what it looks like, what it, what it means for us to be a people who hope in the midst of our suffering. Because if our hope isn't good in the midst of our suffering, then it's not good at all. And friends, the hope that we are talking about this morning, let me just say this. As I was reading that article yesterday, I thought, I wondered, are we doing anything different here? Or are we just serving up another TikTok video's worth of self-help to get you through to the next thing? And as I was wrestling with that, I was reminded, no, the hope that we are here to talk about this morning is a hope that has been road tested over millennia, thousands and thousands of years. And what we're talking about this morning is not quick fixes, it's not three easy tricks to retrain your brain. What we are talking about is spiritual practices that have been lived out in the life of God's people over centuries. We're talking about how do we take hold of this hope that has taken hold of us and has taken hold of the world. That that's what we're talking about this morning. And how we do that in the midst of suffering. So I'm going to invite Sam Marshall to come up. Sam is going to read our scripture for us. And we're in Luke 1, uh, verses 5 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And I want you to listen for the ways that suffering uh, impacts the hearts of the people in this passage. So we'll be in Luke 1, verses 5 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord 
standing on the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my approach among people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we come to you desperate for hope. We're desperate for a hope that is beyond our circumstances. Uh, and Lord, if, if this is about uh, my words, Lord, we uh, are even more hopeless than we thought. But Lord, what we believe and are trusting this morning is that you are with us that your Holy Spirit is with us, Lord, and that you are doing something uh, in our hearts and using even what is happening here this morning to do that. So we come to you trusting that promise this morning and asking you uh, to fan into flames the hope that you've placed in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be talking this morning about the possible impacts of pain on our hearts and on our hope. So the possible impacts of pain, the way that pain can impact our hearts and the way that we hope. And then we're going to talk about how to hope. Pretty simple this morning. Because what we know about suffering, what we've all experienced in our suffering and in our pain, is that it either stirs up the embers of hope that are in our lives or that suffering and pain suffocates those embers and blots them out in our stories and in our hearts. And as we ask, okay, what is the way that suffering and pain impacts our hearts and the hope that we carry with us? We're given the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what we know about them is that they are a people who knew what it was like to experience pain and the kind of pain and suffering that was long and ongoing in their lives. We get that in verse 7 of this passage. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. that this is a couple who had experienced decades of pain in their lives because of their unmet desire, 
that they had something that they wanted in their lives that was so good, that God said was so good, that they had prayed for and wanted and hoped for and didn't have. And we talked last week about uh, the different words that we use for hope that aren't really hope, right? We talked about plans and expectations and wishes. And you can imagine that when Zachariah and Elizabeth got married, that they had all kinds of plans to have kids. It was the default in their society. It's what everyone assumed, and it's certainly what they assumed for their lives. But what they experienced is that after the first, second, third month as time went on, uh, things weren't going as they planned. And they did the thing that we all do, and well, you know, of course, it doesn't happen for everyone uh, immediately. Right, and so the, the plan, it moved to this place of expectation. Well, yeah, we don't know when, we don't know how, but we're, of course, of course, it'll eventually happen. And guys, that place is potentially the most painful place of all because every month they went through uh, the experience of hoping and having that hope crushed over and over and over and over again. That every time Elizabeth was a few days late, they thought this is the time that when she felt sick, they thought, is this the baby? And over and over again, it wasn't. And that expectation, that desire that they had began to die and move from an expectation to just a wish. We wish that this would happen. And it didn't. And they got to the place where they were so old, they thought, this is just never going to happen for us. And there are ways that that was especially painful in an ancient culture, ways that because of the way people thought at the time, unbiblical ways they thought that it invited all kinds of shame and fear and anger and bitterness and resentment into their story. And you know what? As different as our culture is, it's not that different because infertility is one of the most painful things that people can ex- a couple can experience, isn't it? And what it, what it shows us, what it opens up for us, what it reminds us is that we all, to some degree, experience that, that same thing of, of our desires not being met. And there are really poignant ways and present ways that affects people who want kids and can't have them, but that kind of unmet desire, it afflicts all of us. It's true about you. Whether you are aware of it or not, there are unmet unmet desires in your life and you are carrying with you, we are carrying with us the pain of those unmet desires. The person who is sitting next to you, they're carrying those things. The pain is so real. And here's what we often do with it. That we try to figure out, what can I do to get that desire met? What's my role? What's my piece? And there is no shortage of people, of philosophies that will tell you exactly what you need to do to get what you want. Some of them aren't spiritual. Right? There's the materialist perspective that says all that exists in this world is what we can sense and touch All it is is matter and energy. And if that's the case, it's survival of the fittest, baby. So go out there and get what you can get. Take what you can get. And there are all kinds of books you can read that will tell you how to get what you want. 
And in this technological world that we live in, we, we live under the illusion that there is nothing that is beyond the reach of ourselves and our technology. And yet it's not true. And so then there are also all of these kind of spiritual ways that we try to tap into getting God to do what we can't do for ourselves. And it goes beyond that. There are even ways that that makes its way into the church. That if, if, if we can come to believe that if we were just good enough Christians, right? That if we believed the right things, if we did the right things, that maybe finally God would stop punishing us and that he would give us what we want. If we would just do better, try harder, we would finally get what we want. And sometimes it's not enough. That's the scary thing about desire is that we can want something so bad and yet it can be beyond our ability to get it for ourselves. It's so true about the things that we, that we most desire. And so instead of being honest with ourselves about the things that we most desperately want but can't get, we spend hours talking about things like who's going to get into the college football playoff championship, right? Because it's a lot easier to hope about that and talk about that and debate that and put our hope in that than actually deal with the depth of desire that is living with us on a day-to-day -day level that is unmet and that is causing so much pain in our lives. And over time, as we realize we can't get what we want, what often happens to our hearts is they become hard. That's what happened to Zechariah. Of course it did. Because an angel... Gabriel, I love that Gabriel says this. When, when Zachariah says, how will it happen? Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel, okay? I stand in the presence of God for crying out loud. That, that Zachariah is visited by this angel, by the angel who tells him, you're gonna have a son. And his response is, how? It's so logistical. And what it, what it reveals is the unbelief in his own heart. And it's easy to condemn him for that. But can we just acknowledge that is true about all of us? That in the places of our unmet desire, what starts to creep up on us, what starts to happen to our hearts is they become hard with unbelief. How is it going to happen? And the how is not a question. The how is an argument. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Oh, but our hearts get hardened. And of course they do. And in the midst of, of the, the hardening of our hearts, uh, that something changes uh, in our experience of God. That we start asking the question, why? Why? Why would you do this? Why would you not do this? And that what we can experience from God, what we believe that we are being, being met with from God is silence. God, where are you? God, do you see me? God, do you care? God, where are you? And that it can feel like what we are, what we are hearing is nothing. And in that sense, the fact that we, that we believe in God, that you believe in God, makes the pain of unmet desire even harder because there's someone who you know could give you what you want and isn't doing it, and you're wondering, why? Why won't you do it? There's this book called Silence. 
it's by this Japanese author, and he's talking about this historical period. He's kind of fictionalizing this historic, historical period in the 17th century when Portuguese missionaries are visiting Christians in Japan uh, who have had Christianity shut down and are being persecuted for following Jesus. And this priest is watching people who are suffering because they're following Jesus. And then he gets caught, and there are people being persecuted because he won't turn his back on Jesus. And in the midst of all of that suffering, it says this. It says, the terrible anguish rose up in his breast, and violently he shook his head, trying to control the ugly imaginings and the words that rose up in his throat like nausea. He's repeating a prayer over and over again, and he tried wildly to distract his attention, but the prayer could not tranquilize his agonized heart. Lord, why are you silent? Why are you always silent? Have you experienced that? And that fire can cool and harden into unbelief in our own hearts. Guys, the scripture doesn't leave us there. It's honest about that reality, but it doesn't leave us there. Because here's what happens just a few chapters later. No, not even chapters, just a few verses later. I want to read you uh, the first words that Zechariah speaks, or that it's recorded that he speaks after his son is born. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Something has happened in Zechariah. He has changed. He's not the same person that he was, that there's a suffering, suffering has done a different work in him, that there is a point in his life where suffering had hardened his heart, but then in this enforced silence of not being able to speak and potentially not being able to hear, God did something different in him. And when he opens his mouth the next time, what comes out is praise to God and his hope toward God that he is expressing a confidence in the future that he has so securely that he talks about the future as if it were the past. Do you want to know what happened? It matters to us what happened, right? Because that is the kind of hope that we need. That's the kind of hope that I need. Let me tell you what I think happened. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. Paul says that that it's possible that suffering would produce endurance, that endurance would produce character, and that character would produce hope, that suffering could actually lead us to hope in our lives. And he says it's because uh, the Holy Spirit has been given to us and that that Holy Spirit is constantly pouring God's love out into our hearts. That what happened to Zachariah is that he was forced to get so quiet that what he heard in the silence was the sound of the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into his heart. And it changed him. That it changed the way that he experienced his suffering. 
It changed the way that he looked back on the suffering that he and his wife had walked through for decades. It changed the experience of his suffering over the next nine months when he was stuck in silence. And you better believe it changed the suffering that was going to come into his life as he watched his son do a ministry that totally destroyed his son's life. But the silence ends up being a gift to Zechariah. And so if we're going to talk about the how of a how do we, how does our hope change? The how of our hope changing, it has to do with this thing that Zechariah experiences. It has to do with silence. For nine months, at least, Zechariah couldn't talk. I don't know, I wonder if that was a gift to Elizabeth at all. Just, he just finally is just, it's just quiet. But guys, there is such a gift in not being able to talk. There is a gift in it for him. And let's just stop and think about that for a minute because the way that we often think about silence is that silence is all the noise that we are blocking out. But what we often forget is that there's a lot of noise in our lives that we are creating. Like, have you ever told a story so many times that it almost feels like it no longer happened to you? And like the feelings that you had about it change because it becomes like not a part of you. Like this happened to me, and my wife already knows this story, so don't be worried, okay? This happened to me when we got engaged. Um, we told the story of getting engaged so many times, and guys, people had wild reactions. Caroline was the first one of her friends to get engaged in college, and so we had this party. People were, like, crying and weeping on the ground. Someone at church, when we told them, fell on the ground and screamed. I was like, okay, I don't know. This is kind of, this is kind of a lot for me. And after a weekend of all of these other people reacting, Caroline and I were at the park, and I said, honey, I, I, I don't, I, my feelings don't match these other people's feelings. I don't, do I like want this enough? Which of course is like not what Caroline wants to hear right after we got engaged. And she said, hey, it's okay that you did not respond to us getting engaged like a 22-year-old girl. I was like, okay, yes. That's true. Because I'm not a 22-year-old girl. But, but you know what I'm talking about? That all of the talking actually makes the thing feel further away? Or like something bad happens to you and you go around and you tell everybody that you interact with that day what happened over and over and over again because after all, we're trying to be authentic, right, and vulnerable and like living our real stories. So we're telling it to all these people, many of whom have varying levels of care as to what has actually happened in our life. And we get to the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the season and we think, I have said this over and over and over and over again and I actually, it didn't make me feel any better. I just feel worse. I just feel drained. Or we tell it over and over again to elicit and pull out of other people the reaction that we're trying to validate in ourselves. Have you ever done that? I certainly have. And we could talk, we could talk for days about all the ways that our talking actually becomes a way that we distract ourselves from our own pain. So Zachariah can't do it. He's just got to stop and be silent. And we see a little bit later in Luke when when. The people ask Zachariah, what should we name your son? He, they have to make, they have to like sign it to him, which means he's probably also deaf. So for those of you who are right now on your high horse and thinking to yourselves, well, I'm great at not talking about my suffering and pain in my life, right? Um, let me just remind you, there are other ways that you, you drown out the silence. It could be with your busyness, with your job, with a to-do list that always keeps running and never runs out. <laughs> 
that you have it at work and then you bring it home and the to-dos just keep me, as an excellent, I, will, I can testify from personal experience, it's an excellent way to maintain a distraction. It could be the entertainment that we are constantly putting before ourselves as a way of keeping the silence at bay. Zachariah can't do it. He is both mute and deaf. And in that silence, what he is forced to hear is God pouring his love into Zechariah's heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to him. And I want you to think about the Holy Spirit in this situation like, um, like a spring. We have some friends. Some of you know them. Joe and Megan Brink, they go here, so that's why you would know them, okay? And if you've been to their house, uh, down this treacherous slope is this kind of really weird stone building, and when you're there, you're like, what is this? Well, I'll just tell you, it's a spring. And this is a spring house that was built around it, I don't know, decades ago. And there's this little tiny, there's this fresh water that is always bubbling up in it. And I want you to imagine with me that that spring has been bubbling up there potentially for centuries. As life and the world has unfolded all around it. Like, think of it as like a Planet Earth montage. Right? If you could have a camera trained on it, all of the change that you would see happening around this spring, right? that probably originally was full of forest, totally covered with trees. There are Native Americans in there hunting around doing their thing, right? Eventually the trees are cleared. There's, it's, now, it's, now it's a vast field that people are plowing. Right, then all of a sudden, homes start going up around it and being torn down and going up, and there are families whose lives are all happening around this spring, and people have no idea that it's there. In and out, live and die, and it's still there. It's bubbling up all the time. That that is the Holy Spirit in your heart. That if you are in Christ, what is true is that God has given you his Holy Spirit, and what that Holy Spirit is always doing is he's always pouring God's love into your heart, always, and when you come to God and you think, God, are you there? God, can you hear me? God, why are you not talking? That what is true, you, he is there. He is at work. What he is always doing is pouring his love into your heart. So you no longer have to ask when you come to God and you, you get quiet, God, how am I going to experience you to know that you were here? You can already, you can rest on the promise that he is there, which means you're free from trying to figure out, am I feeling him be here or not? He's there. He's there. He's there pouring his love into your heart. Would you get quiet enough to hear it? At the end of this book, Silence, that a lot of people have taken as this commentary or condemnation of God, the author says it's not true at all. And when you read the very end of the book, the, the priest says, he says, Lord, I resented your silence, and a voice responds, I was not silent, I suffered beside you. Now that's true about our Jesus. That he is with you, he is loving you, he is suffering beside you. So how do we engage in that? Because to take a step toward hope in the midst of our suffering, it can feel like a betrayal, can't it? That we live in a world that tells us that in the war between the head and the heart, the heart should always win. 
that to live our true authentic selves is to acknowledge our feelings and to always live in the midst of those feelings. But guys, sometimes those feelings are really hard and really dark and really sad. And it's one thing to acknowledge them and to, to acknowledge their reality. It's another thing to remain committed to that place beyond everything else as a way of being authentic to ourselves. And what enters this picture, this war between the head and the heart, is not us trying to understand the suffering or, or bring enough structure to it that we can finally release what's happening in our heart, but what Scripture calls us to do is to exercise this thing that God has given us called our will. And Psalm 42 talks about this. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? That the psalmist is admitting to us that he has lived in a place of of such sadness, of such loss of hope that other people look at him and make fun of him and say, where is God in your life? And then the psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I again shall praise him, my salvation and my God. He's talking to his own heart, heart, hope. Heart, take hold of the hope that you have been given that's so secure. Heart, slow down, get quiet, listen to the love that the Holy Spirit is pouring into you. That we begin to exercise our will to come alongside, to take hold of, to live out of the hope and the love that's being poured into us all the time. And we talked about this last week, we'll talk about it again this week. We'll talk about it every week during Advent. I'm just going to give you a really simple practice to engage in, to tune your heart to the hope that's being poured into you, the love that's being poured into you. It's called the daily examine. Okay, I'm just going to walk you through how you do it. You get in a comfy place. Set your feet on the ground, relax your body. You can do it at night before you go to bed, but as I shared last week, I always fall asleep, so it doesn't really work for me. I have to do it in the morning. Try to get it as quiet as possible, given that my kids are up at 5.30 screaming at each other in their room, yelling frozen songs. So just as silent as you can, right? Relax the body. And then you acknowledge, you pray, and you say, God, I know that you're with me. I'm in your presence even now. Would you help me see you in the day that's just happened? And you begin to review the day to go through it piece by piece and to let the Holy Spirit stop you on moments where he wants to stop you. And then as, as you're going through that, to ask yourself the question, God, where, and you can ask the Holy Spirit this, where did I experience God's presence today? Where was I aware of God's presence in my life? And what was that like? And then to ask yourself, where was I ignoring God's presence in my life today? What was that like? And in the places that you were experiencing God's presence, that you were aware of it, to say thank you. And in the places that you were not aware of it, that you were ignoring it, to say, God, I'm sorry. God, would you forgive me? Would you heal me if there's something I need to be healed from there? And what it begins to train us to do is to be quiet enough to see and to search for the presence of the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our hearts you can begin to then go a step beyond just reviewing the day, but to review the day that is coming. 
to think about the things that you have coming up, but instead of letting your mind run rampant with all of your fears about those things, to say, Lord, would you help me see you in those moments? To say, Lord, I know that you are with me, that you will be with me in this hard conversation that is about to happen. Lord, you will be with me in this meeting that I this is full of unknowns. God, you will be with me when my family comes for Christmas, and who knows what's going to happen, right? You will be with me when we're sitting at the table, and suddenly we're talking about politics, and I don't know if I have the self-control to not. What will happen to throw into those moments to say, Lord, in all of those moments, you are with me. You will be with me. You will be pouring God's love into my heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to me. So we're taking the hope from the past, our confidence in the God who is with us, and we're then throwing it into the future. That's practicing hope. And that's what we're doing when we come to this communion table. That this is a place that we practice hoping. That this is a place that we bring uh, all of our desire. Because following Jesus doesn't mean that we tamp that desire down, that we explain it away, that we say, well, it doesn't really matter anyway. No, when we bring our hope to Jesus and ultimately our hope is reoriented from our circumstances into him, because that's what happens to Zechariah. You realize, he doesn't talk about his son, John the Baptist, that God has given him until way late in that passage into this prophecy that he gives. And that's not even the focus of it, that his focus is on the one who is coming, that his son is preparing the way for, the one who will redeem, who will save, who is like light in the darkness. That is Zechariah's hope, that in that silence, it's been reoriented from hope and what he wants to hope in the when the one who is coming. And what we celebrate at this table is that the one that he knew was coming is the one who has come. He's come. He is our peace. And he gave himself for us because of his great love for us so that we could experience God pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who Jesus gave to us. And he did that. He accomplished that by the breaking of his own body, by the giving of himself up to suffering, by the moment where he cried out to God the Father, oh, God, where are you? Why, oh, why have you forsaken me? And that what he experienced in that moment was silence as God poured out all the judgment that we deserved on him so that when we are in our silence and we cry out, God, where are you? We can know that God is with us. That's what we remember at this table. And so we come and we bring all of our desire and we say, God, I, I'm, I'm leaving it with you as strong as it is. Oh, would you meet me here? We bring all of our sin and repentance and we say, God, I'm so sorry for the ways that I've ignored you in my life. Thank you that you've met me there, that you've given your life and I could be forgiven. This is the place we come with all of our doubts. I love this, that, that the book of Luke starts off by saying, Luke says, I'm writing this book that you may have certainty, and then the first character we meet in the book is someone who is very uncertain. It, it reminds us that Jesus has come for people like us. Praise God. Praise God. And I'll encourage you, as we are about to go into an extended time of worship and quiet and, and pause, uh, Go ahead and practice the examine as a way of coming to the table. God, where are you in my life? Where have you been in my day and my week? Thank you, God. Where have I ignored you? God, I'm sorry. To let that be what guides you here. On a logistical level, here's how it's going to work. Um, we'll have some servers up here with the bread and the juice. 
you can line up in the middle. You can come. Try to do four to a kneeler. We've got a lot of people here today. Uh, when you're ready, you can take your time, okay, at the kneeler. Have a moment, a few moments. When you're ready to take the elements, put out your hands, and the servers uh, will bring you the bread and the juice. If you're gluten-free, there's a little cup that says gluten-free on the top. You can take one of those, okay? And then when you're done, you can go back to our take a prayer, leave a prayer board. You can write a prayer. Those desires that you have for God, you would, leave, you would leave it there, invite someone else into it, and that you would take a card and be praying for someone else's desire. And if you don't have one to leave, that's okay. There are still some to take. If you want someone to enter into your story and pray for you even while you're taking the elements, you can just cross your arms. And the person who is serving will pray for you. Stop everything they are doing to be with you here at the table. And if you were here this morning and you were not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I just want to appreciate, I just said a lot of stuff, okay? <laughs> and I'm praying and hoping that it's connected to your life, that you're experiencing the way that who Jesus is, that his good news and gospel speaks to you where you are. Yes. And if that's the case, these elements are not for you this morning because this is for people who are running to Jesus and who are saying, Lord, I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. So you're welcome to come. Just cross your arms and receive prayer. Or you can sit in your seat and pray there. And if you are in a place in your life and following Jesus where you're saying, Lord, there are places in my story that you may not touch right now, hands off. This table is not for you. This is for people who are willing to say, God, you have every part of me because that's what love does. It comes for, it takes hold of every part of us. But if that's you and you're desperate for it, come on, come on. So our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me pray for us. The servers will come up and we'll take this meal together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we now take this meal that you would meet us, that you would nurture us, that you would feed us, God, at this table, uh, that we would, we would know and experience your presence. Lord, that you would free us from our expectations of what experiencing your presence is like. Lord, rather than hooking that to a feeling or some kind of moment, that we would be able to rest in the fact that it is true and experience the truth of it being true regardless of how we feel. Lord, would you meet us this morning and would you fan our hearts uh, into hope? Amen.